So when we became Christians, we were not found innocent. We were guilty. Everybody in the courtroom would be found guilty. The difference is, is that the Christians have been pardoned by grace. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to The Worship Review, the podcast which critically and charitably analyzes the texts of songs sung in the church and by Christians. As always, I am your co-host, Tyler. I am a linguist, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Colin. You say a co-host. I like to think of myself as the chief host, as the as the the best host. I'm gonna Midwest one up you here and say I'm. You can be the chief host as long as I can be the chief of sinners. Okay. Oh goodness, so, that I'll that add is a spiritual so, layer on top of it. That is that is exactly the way they do it here. Oh my goodness, the humble brag, the that <laughs> that was devastating, Tyler. Well done, well done. Thank you. So as I was saying. <laughs> saying before getting utterly destroyed in that midwest polite passive aggressive way uh i'm colin i am a history professor i'm a former worship leader and tyler is also a former worship leader too we don't just do this for no reason Um, and we're coming at this from a helpful perspective we are trying to look at the text of songs to try to help people make informed decisions about the songs that they sing in church, the songs they recommend to their pastors and worship leaders. And uh, yeah, keep the conversation going about the content of the music, which is what we think really matters most. Yeah, we're both guys that have a passion for congregational singing and also a passion for words and for truth and for unpacking the meaning of things. And so today we're continuing our series on excellent songs and as has been our custom, one of us brings a song which um, he deems excellent for review. And Colin, this week you've brought a song by Matt Boswell called To the Cross I Cling. Interesting. That's that's an entire sentence in the title there. Uh, the verb, a subject, and even that prepositional phrase. So, Colin, can you tell me a little bit about this song? Yeah, this is a song which I first ran into, I would say, around 2012, maybe, or thereabouts. So, about 10 years ago from the date of recording this podcast. Um, I was in a church in the United Kingdom, and we my pastor ran into this album that was produced by the village church, which is a church in in Texas, maybe somewhere. I can't remember. I used to know all this stuff and I've been so out of this loop. I can't remember, but it was in a a Texas church and they'd produced this album. And there were just several songs on this album. It was called God of victory that I thought were great. And he thought were great. And so we started doing a few of these songs. And this was a song that I just found to be a really great summary of the kind of forensic gospel, the gospel with the metaphor of the courtroom that we see throughout scripture, but especially in Paul's letters and a few other places as well. 
It just really lays down the idea of our guilt and Christ's work to um, atone for our guilt and that God and God's forgiveness that we receive because of Christ's work on the cross. And so it just is a kind of pithy short song that in my view really summarizes and that that kind of courtroom idea that we see in the gospel. Very good. Well, why don't we hop into the lyrics? No day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in your sight. The best I have to offer are these filthy rags, and yet you love me. I like that sin is almost a daily occurrence here. So there obviously is original sin that we have to deal with, but we also have to deal with the transgressions that we commit on a daily basis. And if you think about a courtroom, often what is on trial for the defendant is one act or one instance of something. I mean, in some egregious cases, we're talking about patterns of crimes or offenses in some way. But this song sets up the kind of incalculable weight of sin, that there has not been a day <laughs> of, of a person's life in which there is not evidence that proves them guilty in the sight of God. And again, even something like in your sight, I like that it is God that is the judge. So there's a book that was written by R.C. Sproul, which is called Saved from What? And he makes a compelling argument in that book that it is God's own wrath prosecuting us. It's not like there's just some um, abstract idea that we should be better people or something like that, but, but it is God who is our judge. And so this song, I think, in just a couple of short lines, is able to make it very, very clear that the weight of sin that we bear is overwhelming, the evidence against us is overwhelming, that God is our judge, so I think that's really what's going on in those first two lines. Do you have any thoughts on those first couple? I would simply emphasize what you drew out of them, that uh, in addition to the original sin, which we inherit from our first parents, um, this really emphasizes the the war against indwelling sin. And it's a war which, if left to us, we would lose, right? Every day, uh, we commit sins that are uh, heinous before the face of God and even things that we call, um, you know, even polite sins that are not frowned upon by society like white lies and um, maybe hateful thoughts. Uh, this really convicts us and it brings to mind First uh, John. Uh, brothers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So um, we are sinful in a sense <laughs> if you want to parse that as a compound we are full of sin yeah yeah you bring up um what you called i think polite sins or something and jerry bridges wrote a book called respectable sins which also addresses this idea that okay probably none of us are i don't know committing adultery every day or murdering somebody every day or something like that but we are engaging in all sorts of 
sins that we have effectively deemed to be passable, you know, sort of socially acceptable, gossip, small lies, these sorts of things. And I think no, no Christian, no person, no person can really deny that they are not engaging in sin on a daily routine basis. I know there are some Christians that think um, once you're saved, you need to no longer sin effectively in order to keep your salvation. But as we see in this song, it's actually Christ's work that guarantees that our salvation is secure. It's not our ongoing righteousness, because if it were up to us, as this song says, we wouldn't have anything. In fact, in the next two lines, it says, the best I have to offer are these filthy rags, and yet you love me. This is not a conversion story. This is a song written from the perspective of a Christian who is aware of the weight of their sin. Now, the song doesn't end there. This would be a huge problem if the song was simply about how guilty we are. I don't think that's a Christian song. A Christian song would not just simply opine and lament about our guilt because, of course, we look to the cross. And there's, it's nice that it, even at the very end of this set of lines, after talking about the filthy rag, which is, of course, a reference to Isaiah 64, verse 6, there is this assurance, and yet you love me. So it's a way to remind the person singing the song that, yes, we do need to talk about our guilt, but in, only in such a way as to magnify the great love of God, which, as the song will show, is ultimately shown at the cross. I want to go back to something you mentioned a few moments ago, because you said, you mentioned these kind of polite sins, and you said, we may not commit murder or adultery every day. And I think... Uh, that's true. Thankfully, by the grace of God, uh, with our bodies, we don't commit murder and adultery every day. But that's also something that Jesus Christ made clear in the Sermon on the Mount, that anyone who hates his brother is guilty of murder or says, Raka, you fool, is guilty of murder. Anyone who looks at uh, a woman with lustful intent is, is guilty before God in his sight of the sin of adultery because he's committed it in his heart. And um, one thing that I that gave me caution when I opened this, when I opened these lyrics for the first time and, and started going through them was, um, one, it's completely individual. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I don't think it's even necessarily individualistic, but it's just describing one person's uh, experience. Um, and the other thing that gave me pause was we, we want to emphasize our uh, – sinfulness before God in our own power and also his grace and mercy to us in Christ without necessarily moving into just throwing our hands up in the air and surrendering to indwelling sin because Christ has uh, atoned for it. That's and so right. thankfully we see later on in this song emphasis on us not being slaves to sin anymore and this um, these kind of movements toward uh, growth, toward sanctification, toward putting to death the deeds of the body. So, yeah, this is one of those songs where it, it, you have it's got the the whole song is what you have to look at ultimately because if you took particular parts of it, you would say, yes, this is true, but this is not complete. And so, therefore, it's misleading at best. But as you rightly mention, there are these nice moments in the song where it sort of it clarifies and kind of adds 
essential context or essential components to the gospel message. The other scripture that popped out to me when I read this first verse was Isaiah 64, which says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so it's no coincidence here that Matt Boswell chose the phrase filthy rags uh, or the noun phrase filthy rags because we may be tempted as Christians to come to God and say, I know I'm a sinner, but I give to the church, or I know I'm a sinner, but uh, I, I, I try to love my family well, or we, we offer up these uh, counterfeit sacrifices on false, on false altars to false idols. And so this song reminds us where our true righteousness comes from. It's not in any of those uh, good deeds, which is what's implied by filthy rags here. Um, if we ever think that our righteousness is what makes us right with God, we're, we're basically putting ourselves on the altar to worship, right? We're making ourselves into an idol if we think that somehow our righteousness can atone for our sin, which is, again, vast and great, that our righteousness can somehow make us acceptable to God. That, that is a form of kind of self-idolatry. And it doesn't go well for the sacrifice. No, no so, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> whether it's a blood offering or a burnt offering. So we then have this pre-chorus. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in you plead my acceptance. Again, here is where I like that there is a, a more complete understanding of the gospel. If just one of these things is here, I think it's a little incomplete. So if we, it was just all things in me call for my rejection, it's sort of like, well, my goodness, woe is me, right? What, what are we going to be able to do about anything? Um, but then we have the other line, all things in you plead my acceptance. And this is courtroom language. Again, plead is the language of the court. We enter a plea. Um, and this is also not unlike Paul's language in Romans, which talks about the Holy Spirit, um, pleading, praying, interceding, depending on the translation, for us. So I, I like this I like this set of lines, uh, it's, and it's true. If it was just on the basis of our righteousness, our plea would be rejected. If it's on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, as the song is about to describe, then we will be accepted because Christ is acceptable. He is perfect. I have a lot of, to say about this one because this chorus gave me pause as well um, because I was wondering what exactly it means, all things in me and all things in you. Um, so all things in you, I was, I, I think this is, uh, these are about God's attributes, his mercy, his justice, his love, uh, his grace. But I was also think this all things in you is pointing us to Christ and his lived obedience, his, his perfect righteousness. That's, it's not just disembodied, but it's something that, um, he, he performed righteously throughout his entire life. He never sinned and he fulfilled the law of God. And so his righteousness truly does plead our acceptance. Um, and all things in me, 
not just my, my so-called good deeds, my filthy rags, but yeah, my sins every day, um, they do call for rejection in the courtroom of God. And yet maybe we want to be clear here that this all things in me is, it's actually not universal. It's not a universal quantifier because if you are a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and uh, you are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So um, he being righteous does um, obvious is, is obviously opposed to our sin, but he is also in me and he pleads for my acceptance as well. Um, do you think that's a problem here, Colin? Yeah, I see what you're, I see the point that you're making. For the Christian, Christ is in us. So therefore, um, all things would include Christ, which, and Christ does not call for our rejection. So I, I, yeah, that makes sense to me. To kind of accept the, the language of the way that the, the song is, is structured. I think all things clearly does not mean, I think it would be, I think it would be a little pedantic, I guess I'll say, to to kind of, well, technically, you know, all things for the Christian, that also includes Christ. What What is clearly meant, I think, by all things is, you know, the flesh, right? This is, you know, Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit. Well, I don't know, is there some pedantic reading of Paul where you could say, well, but the flesh is also the body and the body is a temple. And, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think... I think just a, a, a kind of more the most straightforward interpretation of of this admittedly vague language. It's all things is somewhat vague. I mean, it's kind of like everything, I guess. But but I think the the intent here, although not entirely precise, is the flesh. Yeah, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about the different senses in which the world is used in scripture, right. and it seems like flesh is another one where, for example, world can be used to refer to the peoples of this world or the natural world itself. Um, and the flesh can be used sometimes to refer to the physical body, but it's often, I, I think what, what Paul says in Romans seven, um, the body of death, mm. uh, he says, I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. O wretched man, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I think what this pre-chorus is getting at, I think you're exactly right. It's a good answer. Um, in me, all things in me is referring to all things in my natural man, in my flesh, in this body of death. And I think it it's approaching the doctrine and also the statement attributed to Luther that we as Christians are simul justus et peccator. That is, we are simultaneously righteous or just uh, and sinners, um, not as f to give us free reign to go on and sin, but just a description of our status uh, in this life until... Uh, Christ comes again. Yeah, I, I think this is just a way of saying all the parts of me that are not of Christ, right? All of the natural parts of me, the sinful parts of me are 
are are worthless. I, I, like so, John fifteen five. This is Christ speaking, famous verse. I am the vine; you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, so. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but if we are grafted onto Christ, obviously, um, you know, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So I think, I think this, these two lines are just meant to set up a kind of comparison to, it's like the person thinking like, okay, if it were just me, if it were, if it were just me and my righteousness, then I would be rejected. But everything about christ um makes is acceptable and you know christ is in me which the song will later obviously make very clear um so therefore i'm accepted on the on the merits of christ well that thought is continued in the chorus itself I'm guilty, but pardoned by grace. I've been set free. I am ransomed through the blood you shed for me. I was dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. I am reconciled through mercy. To the cross I cling. To the cross I cling. In these first lines of the chorus, we can see the courtroom continuing. This courtroom metaphor is ongoing. It's not the case that the court found us innocent. So when we became Christians, we were not found innocent. That's not what happened. We were guilty. We were found guilty like everybody else. Everybody in the courtroom would be found guilty. The difference is, is that the Christians have been pardoned by grace. They're, they have been set free and ransomed through the blood Christ shed for them. So this song is also explaining the mechanism by which Christians were set free and pardoned, and that is a ransom. And that idea of a ransom is consistent throughout the Bible. We see language of ransom or ideas of... A ransom is just a, um, a payment in exchange for, you know, the, a payment that is in exchange for a demand on something, a, a property or, or life or something. It's usually used in the context of kidnapping, but it doesn't have to be that. It's not, um, it doesn't always have that connotation. So there, there, was a, there was a penalty owed and the ransom for that penalty was paid. And it was paid um, by Jesus himself, who gave his life as a ransom for many, which we read in uh, in scripture um, and this is clear penal substitutionary atonement it's obviously that's in scripture and it's also in the song it's Christ's blood his death on the cross that paid the penalty to God which was demanded ultimately by the guilt of our sin I like it's continuing this seeming contradiction it's continuing this uh, 
cognitive dissonance where by one confesses one's own guilt and sinfulness, even death uh, in transgressions, and then juxtaposes it with our status in Christ. I am pardoned. I'm set free. I'm liberated. I'm ransomed. Uh, I'm I'm now alive um, because of God's grace and mercy. And I think it's curious to note, uh, just as a sideline, because you, you were going on a bit about ransom there, and uh, redemption and ransom in English actually have the same Latin root. So one came to English through an earlier iteration of French, French um, and so redemption came through an earlier iteration of French, which was closer to Latin. Um, and ransom came through um, a later iteration of French. Hmm. But it's just funny that both of these, in, in effect, mean redemption, purchasing back or buying back something that was lost, uh, which is our, which is the case for us in, in Christ. And it's interesting that this it doesn't just talk about these juxtaposed terms, but actually brings us to a focus. It brings all of this. A meditation to a point at the end of this course, right? Uh, I'm reconciled through mercy to the cross I cling, and then that's repeated to the cross I cling. It's almost as if um, it's offered up as as praise of Christ Jesus for what he did on the cross, but also um, making clear what our only hope in this life and the next is. That That, again, thinking back on all those counterfeit things which we might have offered in the first verse, now I am just clinging to the cross. This is my only hope in this courtroom. Yeah. And I think this is appropriate. There will be a point, obviously, when we are in glory, when there will no, be, no longer be a propensity to sin, nor will there be an opportunity to sin. But in this world, we must cling to the cross, right? We must continue to be aware in our fight against sin that sin lays in wait it is crouch satan is crouching like a lion uh, ready to devour and so we as christians do must not have the attitude that we simply are saved in the courtroom and then we no longer need the christ we no longer need the cross we no longer need jesus um, we continue to cling to the cross it is both praise as you say and a kind of um a kind of state that we're in as well. Like we are truly, we remain in a situation in which sin surrounds us, guilt surrounds us, all of these things are around us, but but clinging to Christ is going to see us through this, um, this the challenges of, of continuing to be alive. And I'll also point out, I like your, you're noticing the, the like, I don't know, contradiction is not right, but just the kind of almost oxymoronic language. So we see that too with I'm dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. Again, all listeners will know this is a reference to Ephesians chapter 2, which uses this exact same language of being dead in transgressions, but made alive in Christ. So there's a lot of scripture here. I think there's a, I think it, I think it really accurately kind of summarizes a lot of different thoughts that we see about the, like I said, the kind of forensic aspects of the gospel. And then we come to the second verse. Verse 
No more am I a slave to sin, but bought with a price, redemption that was purchased through the blessed cross that you bore for me, you bore for me. It's interesting to see the cross mentioned here again, uh, right after he's described clinging to it. Yeah, and it's nice, as you mentioned earlier in our discussion, that we have this declaration that the Christian is not a slave to sin. So we do not receive salvation, which is obviously total and complete. It's complete justification. There's no going back because it's total. It's dependent on Christ, and Christ doesn't sin. And therefore, if we're in Christ, we are not going to be uh, we're not going to be found guilty because of our sin, because our sin has been paid for by Christ. His his sacrifice was totally sufficient. It wasn't sufficient to pay for the sin up to the point when we were justified, and then suddenly it's not sufficient anymore, and we have to kind of keep, um, Christ has to be re-sacrificed over and over again. No, his sacrifice once and for all pays for all of the sin of those who are in him. Yet, we receive a new status at the same time too. And Paul talks about this. Um, we are no longer slaves to sin. So we are we, the, the opportunity to sin and the propensity to sin are still here. That still exists as long as we are in this life and in this fallen world. But we are not slaves to it. So we are sons now. Um, we are children of God. And so by God's power through the cross, um, we can resist sin, we can fight sin, and um, we can do that by remembering that we have been bought with a price, which is what Paul talks about in several times in 1 Corinthians, he mentions this. Um, and he, So like, for example, verse 20 of chapter 6, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I think our fight against sin has to start with right belief in our justification that we were bought with a price, that Christ paid for us. We remind ourselves that it is Christ in us and Christ is sinless. And so therefore, we actually do have the power in Christ, though, in Christ, not to sin. And so um, that kind of fuels fuels our fight. So I like that this song you know, reminds us that we're not slaves to sin and also reminds us of the mechanism by which we can fight sin, which is remembering our status. I mean, Christ himself says to the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Like, it is very clear that, the, uh, you know, to, to use a, a theological word, that this that the kind of antinomian interpretation of Christianity is false. This is the idea that the law of God is not only rendered... Uh, like we are not we are not judged by the law of God anymore because Christ has redeemed us, but that we sort of no longer almost need to keep it. Like that the law of God is effectively null and void as as a, as a kind of um, schoolmaster for righteous living. And I think Scripture rejects that idea pretty clearly. And I like that this song I think rejects that too. You used the word oxymoron before, and I think there's another one hiding in plain sight here in verse two, that the idea that the cross. This institute of tort, this device of torture and and um, penal penal killing uh, is called blessed here. Ah, yeah. uh, it, it is an oxymoronic thought, and I think it's one of these things that makes Christianity among the religions of the world profound. That um, our God became flesh, 
dwelt among us, lived a righteous life, and was killed by his own. Uh, and and now we praise him in his resurrected uh, body. Um, and we and because that was the meat, that was the means, the vehicle through which God saved his people. That that cross is now called blessed. That that killed the Son of God. It's it is paradoxical. Uh, it is profound, and uh, in this in this song, it's emphasized that that cross was originally designed for us. In a sense, that that cross that he bore is one that our sins warranted, and that uh, but for the work of Christ, we should have died on it ourselves. So, uh, just a very very thoughtful verse here. We have a refrain, Colin. I'd like to get your thoughts on these uh, theological gems. Oh, 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 oh. I won't read them all. There's just a lot of O's. <laughs> well, you know, the letter O is very holy, uh, holy letter. I am the alpha and the O, 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 O. There you go. O. That's it. it. What would you say in conclusion about this song for our listeners uh, who are you know, perhaps looking for a song that uh, emphasizes our our status in Christ. On the whole, I think this is an excellent song. Is it a perfect song? No, but I think it meets the threshold for, yeah, what I would call an excellent song and what I would give a, the, our highest rating to. It uses a pretty consistent metaphor with the courtroom language. It explains the depths of sin, the weight of sin very, very well, and yet it relieves that weight through a pretty clear presentation of the gospel. It focuses on Christ and his work on the cross, and it also reminds us that Christ's work in us enables us to fight sin and to not be slaves to sin. So I think in just a few short words, it's a fairly short song in terms of its lyrical content, I think it does a very uh, admirable job of just laying out the gospel. I think I think it's a very good song for really addressing our current state, which is somewhat paradoxical, right? We we do wage war with our sin and uh, with the world and with uh, the enemy daily. And this song it really emphasizes the first of those three that uh, we are in a battle against our own flesh and. Left to ourselves, there it, there would be no hope for us. Uh, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were captives. Uh, we were uh, guilty, but in Christ, we've been set free. And it's a good meditation on that truth. So what would you give it out of five, Colin? All right. I'm going to give this five out of five pieces of Texas toast. And I'll do that because uh, the village church... <laughs> Is in Texas, uh, in Flower Mound, uh, Texas, and so we'll go ahead and go with Texas toast. Why toast? I don't know. It's some just yeah. fun. What is Texas toast to you? Because this means different things to different people. Uh, I associate Texas toast with a bread that is buttered, a, a kind of standard um, white bread, not sourdough bread for sure, but it's just a kind of standard white bread. Uh, that is buttered and then is um, griddled, is is put onto a, uh, in, into a frying pan or is, is, is basically like kind of fried. 
Um, and to, to a point of kind of crispiness and caramelization of at least one side of the bread, ideally both sides. Some Texas toast would include things like garlic or cheese, perhaps, but I don't think Texas toast has to include those things. When I was younger in school, every other day or so, we'd have this dessert item called Texas toast. And it was a thick square of bread, which had been heated up. This wasn't, you know, extravagant food or anything like that. It had been mildly heated up, but the top had butter and brown sugar on it ah. and some cinnamon too. And it was, it was really yeah, good. I think that uh, would but count. I just remember how thick yeah. it was. It, it wasn't like a slice of Wonder Bread. It was, it was, it was as thick as a Twinkie, but as long as a piece of bread and with the dimensions of bread from above. So yeah, every piece of Texas toast I've ever had has been thick. And I'm, I suspect that's got to be part of the part of what makes us Texas because of right. Texas is supposed to be, everything's supposed to be big. So maybe Texas toast is also supposed to be thick as well. Maybe some listener can tell us if we've gotten any of this wrong. In fact, we don't even need to ask if there is a listener from Texas <laughs> and we have gotten this wrong. Um, they will be sure to to let us know, I, I imagine. So you notice I had some yes. criticisms about uh, wording. Yes, I'm wondering. Um, I've been wondering what's going to happen here. <laughs> but I, I don't think they're substantive criticisms. I think it's more – I don't think I'm being pedantic. Um, but I think these are lines which, when given the context of the song, make it very clear – that all things in me is not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it's talking about his sinful flesh, sinful nature. So um, I I am going to give it a five out of five Luthers because there, I think the theology of this song is very Lutheran, yeah. very Protestant, traditional yeah. Protestant. Law and gospel. Yeah. I, I, had a, I had a friend and a pastor once who had a tattoo which I, I'm sure that's taboo in some circles, but it, it wasn't for him. And his tattoo said um, sum baptizado on his arm. And uh, he he told me what it meant. It meant I am baptized. And according to my, my friend, I'm sure that we could look into this further. Uh, Luther would recite this to himself when he was overwhelmed with uh, anger at himself and uh, tempted to uh, despair over his sinful state that he would just remind himself of his baptism that that which you know for Luther is is a sacrament uh, it it points to his uh, new identity as a child of God so uh, interesting um, parallel there but yeah five out of five Luthers and with that said. Colin, thank you again for uh, talking with me about this song. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We hope that you'll consider uh, supporting us in, in either through sharing our podcast with interested friends and pastors and worship leaders, or even if you feel so led a uh, financial contribution, which can be found at theworshipreview.com. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.